we've been exploring what it really means to be true apprentices to Jesus Christ. So followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. So we've kind of been answering that question, how do we change at the real core of who we are, our character, the depths of our character? Is it possible to change? If so, how do we change? Now, a few weeks ago, I introduced two diagrams to you. The first one, which comes up here. What we're doing is we've been talking about there's two paradigms uh, of uh, formation, spiritual formation. This first one we call unintentional formation, and it highlights how we are changed by a whole bunch of things within life. Uh, um, I'll go through them very quickly. Each, each of us are formed by the stories that we grow up to believe. That's what we taught about how the world works and how we kind of fit into all of that. We're also formed by our habits, those kind of repetitive things we do day in, day out. They're almost ritualistic things that we do. They do something to us as well. And thirdly, we're actually changed by the relationships that we have. So the people that we intentionally surround ourselves with, they impact us. We become like them. So they, those things that are changing us constantly. And what I'm saying is that all those things, all those components of influences of change take place or they happen around an environment. So if we kind of think environment, think in terms of the town where we live. Think in terms of uh, the place where you work where you socialize, it's where you spend your time. So these, all these components that are actually present in all of our lives, so we're all subject to being changed. You know that? When you get up tomorrow and go out, you are being changed. You're being formed into something, for better or for worse, we're being changed. But what I've been saying, as disciples, what discipleship is, is about counteracting those things, offsetting those uh, those things, um, in order for us to become like Jesus, so that the change that we're going through is actually becoming more like Jesus rather than something else. So this is kind of introduces our second uh, paradigm of spiritual formation, intentional formation. In this, what we do, we replace the stories that was at the top there with teaching. We replace the habits that we had with all spiritual practices of Jesus. And in place of our relationships uh, is community, doing life here together. Um, now, in this paradigm, the environment which all that takes place in is replaced by the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm going to talk about today. It's the, Holy, the presence of the Holy Spirit. So we've spent a number of weeks, we've been talking about teaching, um, uh, spiritual practices, being in community, and kind of to sum all those things up. It's kind of like that's our part in partnering with God in this whole process of change. Yeah, that's kind of us doing our thing. We have a part to play in this, and God has a part to play also. And so all these things that we've been talking about, they're kind of the things that you can expect anybody to engage in, anybody who is serious about being a follower of Jesus, serious about becoming more and more like Jesus, you can expect those activities to be in their life. So it's not a legalistic thing. You know, We haven't approached it from a, you've got to do these things or God won't love you. <laughs> if that message has come across, I've done a terrible, terrible job uh, in, in these talks. That's not what we're saying. It's just if the, our goal is transformation, then at these will be uh, 
features, these will be uh, present in our life. Or maybe to put it another way, if you simply do not want to change, if Christ-likeness is not your goal, it's, that's not on your horizon, that's not where you're heading, then whatever you do, don't activate anything that we've been talking about over the last couple of three months, okay? So don't do it if that's... And of course, I just kind of question, why, why do you come to church if that's not your goal? But okay, that's for another talk on another day, I suppose. Um, but we all have a part to play in transformation. God has a part, and we have uh, our part to play. You see, some people, they are, I think, mistakenly, they think that discipleship has got nothing to do with engaging effort at all. Okay? So they kind of think you just come along to the church every now and again, uh, hang out with Jesus uh, a little bit. And if you do that enough, and all of a sudden, without you even noticing it, it's kind of like, poof, a lot of Christ-likeness just gets dumped on you. No effort applied. It's just, boom, you just wake up, and that's it. Bad news, guys. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it happens. But then there are other people at the other end of the extreme who think that discipleship is all about effort. It's all about, you know, do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. And then we've got to do this. Work at this. Work harder at this. Work, 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 work. And that's kind of like another view, which, I, it's, again, it's another extreme, and I think it's just as wrong as the, the other extreme I described. Discipleship is a partnership. And God has a responsibility in our transformation, and we have a responsibility. I think the most healthiest um, expression, quote, that I found was a quote from the 4th century father, which will come up, St. Augustine, which is this, without God, we can't, but without us... God won't, in, re- in relation to change. Without God, we can't change, but without us, God won't change us. I think that's probably the most healthiest way to approach it. That's the tension that we live in. It's a both and uh, partnership. Now, having said that, clearly, in the actual sort of outliving and the outworking of this transformation, spiritual formation, God does all the heavy lifting, Right? God does all the heavy work uh, in in all of this. Which is why, coming back to our diagram again, right at the centre there, everything is centred around the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all centred, the the focal point is him. He's involved in the teaching, he's involved in the practices, he's involved in all the community. It's through um, an empowered uh, life being connected to, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, in our lives. All change is centered around the working of the Holy Spirit. It's a great, great passage of, uh, in the Bible that speaks right into this uh, subject, or is that truth? 2 Corinthians uh, 3, if you are following along. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, from verse 17. And I'll read this through to you. Something might kind of pop up a little bit familiar to you. For the Lord is the Spirit. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Yeah. You didn't know who was singing the Bible, did you? Wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him 
as we are changed into the glorious, his glorious image. Awesome. One of my favourite passages. Um, before we kind of get into this, I'm going to do a bit of philosophy on you, okay? Anybody into philosophy? Yeah, I know James is into philosophy. Everybody else, you're going to zone out a little bit. This is going to come across a bit nerdy, okay? Don't worry about it. I'm expecting your eyes to glaze over. You come back again. <laughs> check out now. Check in again in a bit. So a bit of uh, philosophy. What I'm going to talk about briefly is um, freedom. I talk about freedom. I'm going to talk specifically about the human will. Our freedom to choose then, okay? Try and hang in there with this. It's important. <laughs> You'll see where it's going in a minute. One key thing that separates us from the animal world is the fact that we have a will, okay? The fact that we have this capability of making choices to act upon, to actually do something or not do something purely by the determination of our will. That separates us from the animal world. Now, there's this uh, philosopher, he's called Harry Frankfurt. He was so into this topic. Um, and back in the 1970s, he was... Um, building this idea, and he came up with these three phrases. He talked about first-order desires, second-order desires, and second-order volition. Volition is just talking about how, how one uses one's will. So first-order desires, second-order desires, and second-order volition. Now, first-order desires uh, are basically those kind of raw, animal-like desires that we all have. I, just, I want to survive. I want to eat. I want to live, I want to dominate, I want to have sex. They're kind of like the raw, first order um, desires that we all are inbuilt with. So if we kind of draw in a parallel with what the Bible talks about on this, the Apostle Paul, when he refers to, he refers to our flesh. It's kind of our fleshly desires. It's that raw, um, basic, I want. It's kind of self-centric. Type. Is that the right word? Self-centered um, desires that we, we all have. Now, an example of this is, I want chocolate, and I want it now. Or, I want greasy chips, or something. For me, my... Uh, <laughs> confession time here. My first order desire is um, hot, spicy Indian curry. <sighs> Seriously. When you're walking through town, you know, and like you walk past the door and the waff hits you. All those spices and all the smells of the meats. It's just like there's that ingrained, I want this now. You know, that's my first order desire. Now, um, a second order desire would be a desire to not desire those things. Okay? So it's a desire not to desire your first order desires. <laughs> ah, confused yet? And we, we, that second order desire, not, desiring not to desire certain things, is because you're aware there's potentially better outcomes. Okay, I'll let me explain. If we go to, back to my example, my first order desire, I want spice, spicy curry, hot spicy curry. My second order desire is, I desire not to desire that, not to want that. I don't want to have that because I know what my stomach is going to be like tomorrow morning. I'm not going to be able to get off the toilet. I've shared this in a story a few weeks ago. <clears throat> okay, I won't go into that one anymore. But <laughs> that's my second order desire. So maybe for you, your uh, first order desire is, I want chocolate. You know, I don't know whether you've had that, you know, it's getting late at night, craving. I just want something sweet. 
I like to get it in, you know? Chocolate, I just want it. No, no, everybody's like looking at me going, no, I never have that. No. You're making me feel bad because I do. But, um, but that's your basic raw first order um, desire. Your second order desire could be not to desire those things because you know, yeah, he's going to rot your teeth, man. Well, there's so much sugar in it, it's just going to go straight to my thighs. <laughs> or whatever, you know. That, so it's, it's so desiring not to desire those things because there could be a better outcome if we don't go with that desire. Does that kind of make sense? You with me? Hey! Good. I had to go over that like 10 times to get it in my head. Yeah, okay, I get it. Right. So that's your second order desire then, to, not to desire not to desire those, but those other things. Then we come to our second order volition. Now this is where you exercise, you engage your will to act upon your second order desire rather than your first. So you're overriding your first order desire. You're kind of you know, pushing back against that. So again, I'm walking down the high street, I can smell those wafts of Indian coming out. And, I, and my first order desire comes along, yeah, I want it. But I walk past the door, I keep, keep on walking. And that is uh, my second order volition. I'm exercising my will. I'm deciding which desire is going to become effective. <sighs> Welcome back, everybody. Wakey, wakey. Okay. So now this... Actually, I'm not finished. This is really, really essential uh, with uh, Frankfurt, Harry Frankfurt, he, because this is how he defines what true freedom is all about. What he says is... To be truly free, to have true freedom, it's not about freedom to do what you want. In the sense of, you know, back in the 60s you had the sexual liberation movement. I can, I can have sex with anybody. You know, that's my desire. I, you can't tell me. I can have sex with anybody. Now, that's not freedom. It's an illusion of freedom. But actually, you're just yielding to your basic first-order desires in that. Your basic animal desires. True freedom is the freedom to engage your will so that you can choose a higher desire that overrides that first order desire. Or to put this into New Testament language then, true freedom is to exercise our will to overrule our flesh, to overrule our fleshly desires and to do what is right. There you go. That was a bit of a journey to get to that, wasn't it? We have, we have a will that we can exercise and flex in order to resist, push back, to overrule the desires of our flesh. Mm. And again, just to bring in that into the context of our living it series, to live the way of Jesus means to live in true freedom, but that requires us to engage our will. Okay? Now here's the thing. Your will is like a muscle. And what happens to a muscle if you don't work it? If it's just, you know, you don't use a muscle for a long, long time. Mum will tell you. I mean, my dad has been really poorly with his neck and other things, and he's not been able to get onto his feet much. And she'll tell you, that what happens is that the muscles become weak and they need training again. In fact, your muscles, if they're so out of shape, you, can, you may get up in the morning, you kind of feel, yeah, I feel quite sprightly. But by 9.30, your muscles are feeling so weak that you've got to go sit down again and kind of recoup all your energy. Your will is exactly the same as that. 
You may start off in the early of the day, I'm going to you know, flex my will, my will muscle is quite, feeling quite fresh and strong. I'm going to have a healthy breakfast. <laughs> so I'm not going to have leftover pizza from last night that's sitting in the microwave. There. <laughs> so I'm going to engage will. So I'm, going, I'm kind of resisting that first order uh, uh, desire. And I'm going to eat something healthy. I'm going to have fruit for breakfast. I'm going to have some toast. That's really nice. And it's kind of easy when we're right at the beginning. We're feeling fresh. Our reservoir is full, so to speak. We're feeling quite strong. Our, our uh, will muscle is feeling quite strong. But what about later on in the day? What about later when it's lunchtime or dinner time or in the evening? And your will muscle is feeling that little bit weak now. I'm feeling a little bit worn out. Then what? Heck, love, let's go and get burger and chips for a late night feast, yeah? <laughs> Again, I'm confessing up here. This is just me, okay? <laughs> this, this is me. I know you're not like that. but Or an example which doesn't involve food. What if late in the evening you're on the internet, your, muscle, your, your will muscle is feeling kind of weak again, you're quite tired, and you sense a temptation to go and Google a website, a couple of websites that you, you know you shouldn't really go and look at. It's not going to be healthy for you. It's not going to bring about Christ-like transformation. You just go ahead and do it, don't you? Your will muscle is, is weak. Now, one of the key things about discipleship to Jesus is about exercising and you know, flexing our will muscle to make it stronger. Um, so that when we're confronted with temptation, uh, which, by the way, temptation always appeals to our first-order desires. Temptation is always appealing to our fleshly um, desires. But if through our discipleship to Jesus, that we've been working on our will muscle, we've been training our will muscle, if you like, when temptation comes along, we're going to be able to engage will and use what the philosophers call that second-order volition. We're going to make better choices that we can actually live the way of Jesus. Which is what this whole series has been about, living the way of Jesus, living it, living it out the way of Jesus. The problem is, of course, <laughs> it's not easy. Because we can't just simply tell our will to be stronger, can we? In those moments of temptation come along, we go, come on, be strong, will, resist. You can't tell you, it just doesn't, doesn't work. And to be honest, actually, by that stage, it's too late anyway. <clears throat> You see, we can't necessarily have that sort of direct influence on our will. What we can have is an indirect influence. Um, and it's an indirect influence that we needed to take place days, weeks, or, or months ago. It's the influences that we have through all those components in our spiritual formation. Um, yeah, it's all those things again. It's about uh, teaching, because teaching is the thing that gets into our minds, into our imaginations, with a vision of what it means to be truly human. And then you get the uh, practices, they get into our heart, so that we start to long for, love the, the vision of you know, being fully human and what that, that means and what that looks like. So we, we start to love that and long for that more than we do for, to satiate our habits or uh, uh, addictions to alcohol or pornography or whatever it is. Um, and then it's through the uh, 
the relationship, sure, the community relationship that we have here is intentionally gathering people around us who are going to pull us towards Jesus and the way of Jesus rather than, you know, drag us in the opposite dire- direction. So the indirect, indirect influence that we have on our will is through these components. So that when the temptation comes along, we are equipped. We're going to be stronger. So long before the temptation comes along, we need to realign our lives <laughs> and center our lives around these things, around the teaching, around practice, around community, and we will have the power to overcome our fleshly desires. Now, I hope that kind of does make a bit of sense, but I've got some bad news. I've got some bad news. The bad news is our willpower alone will never be enough for us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus and to live the way of Jesus. We absolutely need willpower. We need to use and engage our will. We need to exercise that will muscle. But we, it won't be enough for us to reach our goal of being like Jesus. All the things that we've spoken about, reading the Bible, the practices, uh, the Sabbath, um, fasting, silence and solitude, all those things will absolutely have an effect on our lives, a positive effect on our lives. Um, but they won't, in, in and of themselves, they won't create Christ-likeness. Uh, they can't transform those ingrained sort of character traits, those things that have shaped you since you were a child, you know. The, all the things that we're talking about, your will, it can't affect those things. It can't directly in itself uh, affect those things. Practices are, are just not enough. What we absolutely need is, absolutely need is an access to a power which is beyond ourselves. We need access to the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer, all of us who are in Christ. Now, this is what I think what Paul talks about in the Second Corinthians passage. And in fact, actually, before really unpacking that a little bit more, we re- in order to really understand what Paul is talking about here when it comes to transformation, we need to look back at an Old Testament passage that Paul is directly referring to here. Okay, so And that comes up in Exodus Chapter 34. So Exodus 34 is a real odd little story. Here we go. It goes like this. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. Freaking out. Moses called them out, called them. Aaron, all his leaders in the community, they came back to him and spoke to, and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him. Uh, and he gave them all the commands that the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. Uh, but whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out, told the Israelites what had been commanded. They saw his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went back in to speak to the Lord. What a strange little story. A really, really strange story. So Moses, 
he's been having these regular encounters with God. He's been going up the mountain. He's been going into God's presence, or what the Bible describes as going into the glory of the Lord. And that sort of came down. This is like a, a big glory cloud covering that came down over, Mount, uh, over Moses and over the mountaintop. Now, this cloud, by the way, in the Old Testament, it's kind of like a picture of the Holy Spirit. Okay, it's like a precursor to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And as Moses encounters the presence of the living God, he is physically changed. He is transformed to the point that his face is like, it's like glowing. And it's, it's like, it's beaming. He's reflecting the glory of God. And it's just so awesome a sight. So much so that all the Israelites, including his brother Aaron, are freaking out. Um, and they went, don't want to go near him. And so how he answers this problem is that Moses, he would cover his face with a veil. It's kind of like a burqa, is that what they call it? The, like, like a burqa thing, where you just like cover his um, face. And then whenever he came out, he'd cover his face whenever he came out to meet the people. And then whenever he'd go meet with the Lord again, he would unveil his face. Now, a little point to note here. Moses is the only person that can go into God's presence in this way at this time. Nobody else in all of Israel, not the chief priest, not Aaron, not anybody, only Moses, okay? So keep that little story in the kind of back of your mind. That's a backdrop as we come back to our 2 Corinthians passage. And actually, if you, if you read, we won't have, we'll read some of it, well, not all of it, but if you read the whole of this 2 Corinthians 3 uh, passage, you'll see, you'll see clearly this is, this is what uh, was in the back of uh, Moses, Paul's mind as he was write, writing this. So if we come back to 2 Corinthians 3, this is verse 7, first of all, 7 and 8. It says, The old way with laws etched on stone led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face, for his face shone with the glory of God even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? So right away here, Paul is drawing these contrasting, uh, well, the contrasting parallel between uh, our relationship back then in the Old Testament with the presence of God in this glory cloud. Uh, so that was in the Old Testament. And he's comparing that now, drawing a parallel with the relationship that we as followers of Jesus have with God's presence now through the Holy Spirit. Verse 12. So since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We're not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. So it seemed that Moses, when he would come away from God, this gliding, this beaming, this glory would begin to, to fade away. And yet he continued to wear it. Yeah, I have thought about it. He continues to wear it even though he's not glowing. It's, I don't know, does that sort of say he doesn't want people to know that he hasn't been with the Lord lately? <laughs> it's kind of a bit of hypocrisy. I don't know. But verse 14. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old, the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, 
Their hearts are covered with this veil and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, whenever somebody turns to him and faces him, this veil is taken away. So then we come to our verse uh, 17. For the Spirit, the Lord is Spirit. And this is so key to what Paul is saying. And wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, wherever that place where God's presence is, wherever God's presence is, there is freedom. Now, the freedom that Paul is talking about is is freedom from bondages, freedom from the bondage of the flesh, uh, first order desires. It's freedom from those things. And it's here where people are set free, in God's presence, where the Spirit is, where the Holy Spirit is present. The thing is, though, the Scripture... uh, in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is described. He's, he's never described as an impersonal power source. You know, this is sadly many people view of the Holy Spirit. It's just this kind of power that we wield. Um, it is just is not nothing. It's totally impersonal. Um, right the way through the scriptures, you see that actually <laughs> he is uh, the power and the presence. Of God, the Holy Spirit is the empowering presence of God, and it's through that empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was able to perform all the miracles that He did, and it's through that same empowering presence of the Holy Spirit within each of us that we do the same, and it enables us to live the way of Jesus, to live according to what His His kingdom. The Holy Spirit is the person and the empowering presence of God. And he lives in you. woo <laughs> It's the person and in the empowering presence of God, and he lives in every one of us. So when we talk about Jesus, Jesus is with me, Jesus is coming to me, Jesus is living in me. Because technically speaking, what we're talking about is it's the Holy Spirit is living in me and he's living in and through me. You know, you and I, our bodies, as what the scripture says, is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in us. So where God's empowering presence is there, there is freedom. Verse 18. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. This is just Awesome, if you think about it. No longer does this apply just to one man. <laughs> no longer is it some sort of special, it's not me, you know, the pastor, so I can go into the presence on your behalf. It's not just down to one man, it's not open to, to one man. It's, it says that we're all able to. We're, it's accessible to all of us who the veil has been removed. Now, going back to the language that we applied to the Moses story earlier on, this veil being removed when he came into God's presence, it's like all of us now have accessibility to the empowering presence of God, not just one of us, all of us. All of us who are united uh, in Christ, we can come and we can see, we can gaze upon and we can reflect God's glory. Now, apparently, that Greek word there, um, uh, it, 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 some translations call it contemplate the glory. 
where, where it says we can look at and, and reflect. I think the NIV actually translates that, contemplate the glory. It means to stare at something. It means to be almost mesmer, you know, mesmerized as you're gazing upon something, as you're gazing, you're kind of lost in you know, that just staring into the face of Jesus. <clears throat> or maybe another way to actually say that, it's living an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit or abiding in the vine, <laughs> abiding in Christ or contemplative, intimate prayer. It's that deep, intimate place, that communion with you and the Holy Spirit. They contemplate the glory, gazing upon his, his face. And what happens then when we actually position ourselves there? He goes on to say, and the Lord, who is the Spirit, yeah, it's him. He makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glorious image. And this is the whole point of what you know, Paul's message here, and what he's driving at. It's all from and all through him. It's all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Transformation is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is central to all. We will never actually re reach our ultimate goal of uh, becoming, being transformed into the image of Jesus if we neglect or we downplay the centrality of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me. Pure will alone won't cut it. Listening to a whole ton of teaching won't get us there. Actually uh, engaging in spiritual practices of Jesus, that won't cut it either. Placing yourself in intentional community relationships with believers, that won't transform you alone. And yet you know, I am all for those things. I've spent the last three months talking about them. They are all so vital. They're so crucial to transformation. But we all need this access to a power that is beyond ourselves. It's only found in that intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit, which is accessible to every single one of us, every one of us who is a believing follower of Jesus. So lastly then, just to finish off, talk about the two ways that the Holy Spirit outworks transformation within our lives. It happens through two, generally two ways, through breakthrough moments and process moments. Breakthrough moments then, these are kind of rare moments, they happen every now and again. Um, we call them breakthrough moments, they just seem to be one-off, totally unexpected, totally unplanned moments where the Holy Spirit just does a, a remarkable work. Um, of transformation in us. It's like he just touches our life, you know, and there's just this huge leap forward <laughs> in, in terms of our character and our growth. I don't know, something that it would normally take, something that would probably take years, generally, of like practices and teaching and so on, can sometimes be just an instant change, a transformation through a work of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul's encounter would be a... a um, on the road to Damascus would be a great example of this. He's this, this accelerated, uh, complete transformation, going from a place of being like the chief persecutor of the church and, and then becoming one of the greatest um, advocates of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a moment. 
For yourself, those moments might include um, instant healing from a particular disposition that you might have, maybe anger, anxiety, feelings of deep remorse or regret for whatever. And the Holy Spirit just like comes upon you and it's just this incredible work where he just breaks that thing off of us. Those are breakthrough moments that we can have. Or something, something is a physical healing. It's just this process of God bringing us back, restoring us back to our full uh, true image. Uh, I don't know whether you can identify with breakthrough moments in your life, but you know what? That is something that we're always praying and expecting, when, uh, praying for when we have a ministry time after. We were always praying, God, come and just don't have that breakthrough moment now in this individual. Bring your healing, bring your restoration, make, transform their lives today. So there's breakthrough moments. And on the other hand, there is, and this is kind of how most often it seems to be the case for transformation, uh, transformation that comes through process moments. Uh, in the NIV version of that last, um, last verse, it says, when it says we are being made more and more like Jesus, the NIV says we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. <laughs> Because the, the Greek word there for being transformed is metamorpho. It's the, it, the imagery attached to that word is, is the change that occurs between a caterpillar and a ladybird. It's a profound, radical change of, um, change of form. A butterfly. A caterpillar and a butterfly. What did I say? Ladybird. Blur. They don't change into ladybirds, Okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it changed from a caterpillar into not a ladybird, into a butterfly. But it's a radical change. That would still be a radical change if it went into a ladybird. I think we'd have to give God the credit for that one. <clears throat> and again, that, that Greek word, the Greek, where it says being transformed, that's a really odd, actually, the way that, that, that the phrase comes together in the Greek. It's kind of got a mix of ongoing and present tense in the word. It's kind of a myth. We don't have an English equivalent, and it's really hard to, to translate, but it's like this kind of present, uh, ongoing tense process. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a really odd thing. It's this complete life transformation. It's not an event, is what we're getting to. It's not necessarily a one-off event. It's a process we go through. Um, and we don't always like to hear that, do we, today? <laughs> You know what you mean? This is going to take time. Uh, you know, I've got five minutes. Uh, you know, it's in a society where it's like email and super fast fiber broadband and uh, microwave everything. We want it right now, don't we? We want the change now. We don't want to hang around. But it is. It's, it's about a process. In response to the question, is life change really possible? The author of this book, The Relational Soul, they actually said this, change is possible, but it's harder than we want, and it takes longer than we expect. <laughs> change is possible, but it's harder than we want, and it takes longer than we expect. Now, I guess if you've been a Christian for many, many, many years, I mean, my mum, you've been a Christian for what, 48 years? Is that right? About, about that. Who's counting? Um, 48 years. I mean, it's like, you would probably agree with that statement, right? It's a process. Transformation takes time. It doesn't come instantly. 
Um, there's no fast-tracking life change. There's no fast-forward button when it comes to character change. When Jesus spoke about discipleship and, and living his way, he used analogies like vines and trees. And you don't fast-track a, you know, a fully-grown tree, do you? It just doesn't happen. And similarly with the Apostle Paul, when he talks about it, he talks about fruit. He uses the analogy of fruit of the Spirit. We've got the scripture that come up, come up just briefly. Galatians 5, 22 to 25 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, uh, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is Andrew's favourite passage. This is your life passage. Isn't it? He loves this. Um, and what Paul is not talking about here is just simple behaviour patterns. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about deep character traits. And I like fruit. They have to be grown. It doesn't come instantly. And what's more, Paul isn't telling us to do more kindness and do more self-control. You know, it's like, if we can do that anyway. It's not a command. You can't command yourself. You can't do that. You know, come on, have more patience. Just try harder. Get down. Squeeze out more patience or something. Um, it just you can't do that. But there is no. That's not a command that he's using in the text here. In fact, the only command is what we come to later on, where he says, "Let us keep in step with the Spirit." That's the command. That's our part. That's our responsibility. Keeping in step with the Spirit, walking intimately hand in hand with the Spirit of God, or abiding with Him, remaining in Him. And that is, or the byproduct of that, is that there is deep character virtues that it describes. He grows, he grows in us. <clears throat> but there's the thing: if transformation comes through breakthrough moments, so if you do experience that, yeah, man, I just feel so like Christ in the area of patience or self-control or whatever it is. Awesome. Praise God. Let's celebrate that. That is absolutely fancy. We give all the glory to him. But if it's a process moment that you are transformed, if it takes place over days, weeks, months, or even years, which nine times out of ten, it mostly is that, that way, again, that's no less work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I say again, celebrate. Yahoo! It's taken me 20 years, but I've come this far and God has made me like Jesus in this particular area of our lives. So finishing then with our spiritual formation diagram. Transformation, which comes about, it comes about by a culmination of all these components, it takes place over time, and it often occurs, down the bottom of the, the thing there, it often occurs through the trials and difficulties in life. <laughs> ah, Dad, I know it. If you was to ask any mature follower of Jesus, somebody that you look up to, you think, man, that's just so like Jesus. If you ask them, when were those moments where you knew kind of growth and sort of Jesus-like characteristics being drawn out of you? When was that? Invariably, they say, it was, I was at the lowest point of my life. Maybe they were going through a job loss, they'd lost their job, going through a relationship breakup, lost somebody close to them, or, or whatever it was. It's, it just seems that that's the thing that the Holy Spirit uses, not causes, 
but uses to generate growth and maturity um, in us. Rarely do you have somebody say, you know, I was just cruising along, and I just listened to some sermon preached by Rob, and boom, man, that was it. I was just transformed. I was like, Jesus. I'm still looking for that sort of response. I've never heard that, okay? You're keeping it from me, just to keep me humble. That's what it is. (laughs) Thank you. You care about me. (laughs) Most often, it's through the stuff that causes heartache and suffering. Like I said, loss of a job, breakdown, uh, debilitating illness, uh, or whatever it is. These are things that the Holy Spirit often works through. Being disciples of Jesus... Being a follower of Jesus, an apprentice to Jesus, whatever you want to call it, is to devote your life to being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did. And we all know that we're not there yet, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we know that we're not there yet. You know, when we think about all the things we know about Jesus, all the things that we can think about, his character and who he was, what he did, and then we think about ourselves, we know there's a gap in between that. And the wording, the kind of language I've been using is, we're about closing that gap. That's what discipleship is. We're closing the gap in between that. And so we engage our lives, we engage our will, we train and we exercise that, that will muscle and through leaning in and depending on the power and the presence of the indwelt spirit within us by fixing our gaze on him, being lost, mesmerized by that intimate relationship we, we have with him. You see, all we're doing is in this is just we're creating an environment for the Holy Spirit to actually work. Yeah? That's all, that's, all, that's all our part is. We're just creating the environment. He does all the work after that. But when we do it, we will be changed from glory to glory into the very image of God. Why don't we stand? <laughs>